Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Two years ago, my portfolio looked allocation-wise looked completely different than it does today. I was about 90% stocks, 10% bonds, and that was it. And then I kind of started to learn more about the left field, as you call it. And there were all these other alternatives out there that you won't hear about from a financial advisor because there's no commissions involved, sort of outside the box a little bit. I started trying to educate myself and I'm not where I want to be yet, but I figured I needed to add a few more investing tools to my toolbox. And as I started to learn more about real estate, I started to see that there were so many avenues in real estate to make money. So my portfolio today looks a lot different. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as one hundred dollars or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. happy today to welcome Paul Shannon from Red Hawk Real Estate. He worked for 15 years in medical device sales, and then almost two years ago, he ditched his W-2 to go full-time in real estate, both active and passive. He currently buys distressed single and multifamily properties and is looking to scale up into larger assets. Paul has been a great friend to left-field investors, being both a member of the infield community and a writer of several of our weekly blogs. This episode is a little bit different than normal as Paul is not strictly a syndicator or a passive investor. He's a little bit of both, but he has a great story about leaving his stable job to take a chance on creating wealth for his family through real estate. So Paul, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here. 
Great. So I'd like to start out, if you can just talk about your journey. I mean, everyone kind of dreams of ditching the W-2 and, and you were able to do that. But can you talk about how you got to that point and then where you're going now, kind of your whole real estate journey? Absolutely. Um, it really starts from the very beginning, graduating from college. I got into sales because I really didn't know what else to do. I uh, took multiple promotions and, and worked hard. I was willing to move around the country. So that helped me accelerate my career a little bit faster. As promotions came, I found that I was relatively good at it and I would get excited about the job for six months, but then I would be looking for the next move. And there was really a void that was growing inside me that maybe this isn't the right path for me, but it almost was like a bird in the hand type of situation where, you know, as promotions came, compensation would follow. And I felt as though if I had just save and invest and live modestly, I got into that whole financial independence mindset where if I track my spending and I know how much I need to live off of, and I save accordingly, I can use the 4% rule as kind of a gauge to know when I'm kind of at the finish line. And at that point, I could take a step back and do something that maybe I enjoy a little bit more. All the while, I was interested in real estate, but I kind of had that analysis paralysis. I didn't know how to get involved. Uh, It seemed like a big risk. It seemed like a lot of work, and you seem to have to have connections and knowledge that I didn't have. So it was really on the back burner for quite a while. So as I got closer to that financial independence number, I started looking at what life would look like after I was going to leave W-2 work. And I got a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of just living off principal and withdrawing 4% with all the ups and downs in the stock market. And I wanted to have some income in addition to protecting my principal. So traditionally, you'd look at like a 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds uh, as, as kind of providing that benefit. But to me, that didn't seem likely to perform the way it had over the last 40 years with interest rates being so low bond market had been in a 40-year bull run, it was likely that interest rates were going to go up. Obviously, that would impact bond prices. So I was looking for ways to provide passive income in an alternative way. So that kind of led me back to real estate. I saw an opportunity where rental income could provide that, where bonds maybe couldn't. And I decided to kind of take the plunge finally. I mean, for a while, I did a lot of research. Like I said, I had analysis paralysis. Uh, I did find a mentor that kind of gave me a little bit of his background and blueprint as to how he went to to bat with this whole process. You know, I'd follow him around onto uh, job sites and see some flips he would work on, see some rentals he would work on, and meet for coffee and just pick his brain. Honestly, it lasted for about two years before I pulled the trigger. Uh, but when I finally did, that's when things started to change a little bit more. My mindset started to change. So back to your mentor, how did you find a mentor? Uh, in the process of kind of looking into real estate, I decided I needed to talk to an attorney. I, I wanted to figure out if it made sense to invest in my personal name uh, alongside my wife or create an LLC. So I had that conversation with the attorney and I kind of told her what I was looking to do. And she mentioned a couple people in town, uh, I'm in Indianapolis, uh, that were doing you know, what I wanted to do on a, on a much bigger scale. And I decided just to reach out and see if anybody would be willing to meet me for coffee. And I was able to connect with a, an individual who had well over 100 units, uh, had been doing it for about eight or nine years, and was an accountant before they left their W-2 job. So I was fortunate that that person wanted to kind of give back. And I didn't have much to bring to the table, honestly. And uh, everything I've heard about you know, trying to find a mentor is giving, 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 and not asking for anything in return. I was fortunate to be in the position where I didn't really have much to give him, but he was nice enough to kind of take me under his wing and and always be there to bounce questions off of. And uh, seeing his success and what he was able to do was certainly a big factor in my decision to kind of take the plunge myself. That's great. When I 
think about real estate and the people in real estate. I know w- when you listen to all the the podcasts, you hear the the stuff about yeah, you can get a mentor, but you gotta like you said, give, give, give. I've found that there are almost everybody in real estate is willing to sit down and have a cup of coffee now. You know, get on a Zoom call or a, a phone call just to, just to chat. And it seems like the people that are successful don't mind giving it back. It's a very tight knit community. It feels like in real estate. Is that your experience beyond just this one mentor? It is. Yeah. I I think uh, there's something about this business where people genuinely enjoy what they do. They enjoy the process and not just trying to achieve some outcome, whatever that outcome might be. So if you really enjoy what you do and you like to talk shop, it's not really work. It's just can pick up little trinkets from a person that maybe thinks about things a little bit differently than you do. You can find potential partnerships by just having conversations with people and you have the opportunity to give back or, uh, or learn from others, uh, vice versa. So uh, I absolutely feel that way. Yes. So get, getting back to your story, then you said it took you two years to, to pull a trigger. Can, can you talk a little bit about how you finally got the courage or what it took to, to finally do your first deal and tell us a little bit about that deal? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I think when I first was getting into the right mindset, I had this, uh, this self-limiting doubt for one. And I thought that if I invested in, let's say, a $100,000 house, that I could potentially lose $100,000. And I really knew that that wasn't the case. I had been a stock investor before. I just sort of dollar cost average into the stock market as I had money available to do so. You know, there could be wild swings in the stock market. You could lose 10% during a correction. You could lose 30 or 40% like we saw in 2008 or most recently during the, uh, the COVID downturn. And it seemed you know, going through those experiences, it seems like it's rather unlikely that you would lose 30 or 40% on a real estate transaction. It's a hard asset. It's relatively stable. Is there potential to lose principal? Sure. There's, there's risk in any investment that you make, but it's very unlikely if you buy a $100,000 house, you likely have to put 20 to 25% down. If things don't go the way you want, if the market goes down a little bit uh, and you're forced to sell, which in most cases you shouldn't be, you're just going to collect the income and wait it out. That's the nice thing about real estate is if, you're, if you think you're going to lose money, you just have to wait a little bit longer to get it back rather than just lose it uh, right away like you can in the stock market. So that was a big thing for me was just realizing that even if this goes poorly, it's very unlikely that I'm going to lose really any money. I might just have to wait a little bit longer to get it back. And it's almost impossible to lose all your money. So it seems pretty obvious, but that mindset was something that took me a while to really get my arms around. And once I did, was when I kind of forced myself into taking the plunge. The time I realized I knew I needed to, to, to try this was, one, I had the void growing inside me that the W-2 income, the W-2 work was not what I wanted to do forever. And also where the point converged where I realized the 60-40 portfolio didn't seem likely to perform. And the only way to, to kind of you know, subsidize that was to find some way to make some income off of, off of investments that I wasn't getting through the stock market. So what was that first deal? The first deal was a duplex. It was an older house. It came with a tenant in it. And it was a good experience in the fact that it got me in the game. And that really is a a big thing. When you start investing in real estate, the first deal is always the hardest to get into. Uh, It was literally two months later that I I bought another single family home, which was an auction uh, property. And I implemented the burst strategy on that property. So the first property was a duplex, but there, there really wasn't much work for me to do other than getting used to the idea and the different intricacies of managing tenants and it being an older home, there were some maintenance issues. I've since sold that property and I made a very modest return on it, but no regrets, absolutely not, because that's what actually got me in the game, like I said. So the the real first deal where 
I was able to buy something and create equity and value in it was the single family I bought a couple months later. And that was at the very end of 2018. It needed quite a bit of work. The entire interior needed redone. So it was a big job for my first kind of rehab project. My mentor certainly helped me kind of through the process, but really it didn't go all that well from a process standpoint. I had a contractor who was, I paid hourly and sort of abused the process there. Yeah. Was hanging around the house. I couldn't be there all the time. I was still working my W2 job. And, uh, you know, they were having parties there at night and racking up the hours, uh, drinking beers rather than doing the work. Oh, man. It became kind of apparent towards the end of the project that I was going over budget and uh, things were kind of getting away from me. So my weekends for about a month were spent over at the house with him and his team, making sure that the work was getting done and me working alongside him to see exactly what was going on. So we did go over budget. It wasn't perfect. We were behind schedule. It was uncomfortable dealing with that contractor. So those are the bad things. But at the end of the day, once the project was done, I had a really nice house. I decided to refinance. I had paid cash for it, used cash for the rehab, and decided to refinance out of it. And it appraised for, what was it, 145000 I had about eighty five into the deal. So I put 25% down, and I was able to get out more than I had put into the property on the cash out refinance. And that was like, a fire being lit inside me. And that's when I knew that, you know, I screwed this up royally. <laughs> this was my first uh, go around at, at a Burr's type strategy deal. There were parts of it that I didn't enjoy. Man, the finish line feels pretty good. And this is definitely scalable. I can do this again and again and again. I can recycle my capital, pull it back out when I'm done with the project and theoretically never run out of money and continue on this journey. So it was about three months after that. Uh, I had bought two more houses but I decided the biggest risk for me right now is staying in a job that I'm not happy with and doing the same thing that I've done and expecting a different outcome versus taking a chance on myself while I'm relatively young. I'll be 40 this year. Uh, and if things don't work out, I always have the opportunity to go back. But we had a decent nest egg. I had had a lot of coaching over the course of a few years, a lot of research, a lot of books. And here I had this limited experience, but saw that you know, I can actually do this. And, and that changed everything for me. So three months later, I left my job and I've been doing it ever since. So you are one of the, um, the people that leaves your job before you've replaced your income. That's right. That makes me a little bit nervous. Like if you, you kind of, it didn't go perfect the first, the first property. The, the result was fantastic, but you had contractor problems and it was a bigger job maybe than you thought. You went over budget a little bit. So how did you how did you convince yourself that, okay, I can, I can do this again? You had to find, I assume you found a new contractor or how did you decide, hey, I'm, I'm just going to quit my job and, and go all in on this just from that one success? Yeah, I don't know if it's, um, it's something I can truly explain and articulate, you know, the feeling that I had during that time period, but it really came down to mindset. It came down to the idea that, you know, there's going to be trials and tribulations as shown on this project. There's going to be things that I can't expect that are going to come up. I think if you adequately prepare, if you have reserves, you can kind of take on those challenges as they come. And that's where, you know, I started to think differently about the whole process is that I'm going to get better at this. I'm going to find ways to improve my process. I'm going to find a good contractor. I'm going to, you know, find better relationships, find more deals, but I can't do it, you know, one hour a day because that's the only time I have. If I, if I go all in on this, and I spend, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, like I do on my W2 job, focused specifically on real estate and improving all the things that I know I need to get better at, that's going to happen. So, you know, I think it would be a bigger risk to say, 
I, you know, I, I didn't have any money in the bank and I, I have all these bills to pay and this big mortgage. I don't know if I would have pulled the trigger uh, and done the same, the same thing, but because I had worked 15 years and saved diligently and made sacrifices and, you know, put aside money for a rainy day and was kind of on that path of financial independence as it is, it gave me the flexibility and gave me options to make these kind of decisions where it wasn't as big of a risk as that point at that point as it may have been if I didn't have any any capital in the bank or any reserves. I love that. I think jumping out out and trying something maybe before you have that replacement income that actually might help you because you're you're just hungrier and and you know you got you got to you got to do it and you got to make it work. You said you could always go back to uh, to the W two if you absolutely needed to, but it seems just from knowing you and your progress, you've really never looked back, right? So where are you now and, and what have you done since you, you ditched the W-2 and, and really got going in your real estate journey? Well, it's been a, it's been a fun ride. Um, I started in Indianapolis, like I mentioned, that's where I live. And um, you know, after I left work, an interesting thing happened. I felt as though the market had kind of shifted and I was having a hard time finding deals locally. Now that I was doing this full time, I didn't really have a choice. I had to find deals. So <laughs> where was I going to go? I didn't really feel very comfortable with the long distance investing model, especially markets where you had to get on a plane from home and fly to the property. Or, you know, I just feel as though there's there's something about being relatively close uh, where you can get down there within a day's time. You know, property management is is a big thing when you think about those uh, issues that could arise if you're not in town. So I wanted to be able to kind of manage the manager and have that relationship be a little bit closer. So I started looking at tertiary markets around Indianapolis where there may be a little bit less competition, where there's still growing growing population and, and job growth and dynamics that would lead to population growth. I looked at you know Dayton, Ohio, Toledo, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and ultimately Evansville, Indiana is where I settled. And that's where actually most of my business is now. The market fundamentals are solid there, but really what it came down to was relationships and people. Um, I met a property manager down there who was young and hungry and was growing their business. They also had a general contracting license. And the gentleman that owns the firm down there, his father runs the, the GC business. I decided to take a shot on them. I, I bought a property out of foreclosure um, and had them kind of work it from, from day one. And they, they gave me a great product. They filled it with a good tenant who's been there ever since. And it worked out really, really well. So um, from there, I got a couple other properties. We did the same thing with those. These were all you know, cash out refinance deals when they were finished with the rehab. And I started to get fed more deals. I think he knew that I was hungry. He knew that I had uh, capital to spend and wanted to grow in Evansville and started connecting me with other people. I ended up buying a six property package. Three of those properties were four unit apartments. So that was my kind of first step into a little bit bigger multifamily. I'd done that, that duplex was the first I bought, but these four units needed significant work. So that was my biggest uh, project of 2020 was rehabbing those, which I've since sold. But kind of grew through, you know, relationships down there, and and uh, my property manager introducing me to other investors and uh, some bank connections he had, uh, some other contractors. You know, went to some meetups and met some other people around there, and and the deal started to just kind of flow a little bit more than they did for me locally in Indianapolis. So I sold I sold some properties in 2020 to kind of de-risk a little bit with coronavirus going on. I did a couple flips because the market was right for it. It was a little bit of a nicer product on the purchase. 1980s, 1990s builds that that needed some work to update them to get get a profit for a flip. So that was kind of 2020. And then 
most recently, the capital that I was able to generate through the sales of, of some of the rentals that I uh, rehabbed and filled with tenants and sold turnkey, and then some of the flips I'm using to roll into a multifamily project now, uh, by far my biggest deal. I'm supposed to close on, on Thursday of this week, actually. It's a 40-unit value-add, affordable housing, workforce housing, whatever you want to call it, type project. So I'm look, very much looking forward to that. Wow. And so are you doing that on your own? Or are you partnering with somebody on that? This one I'm going to do on my own. I guess you could call it partnering with my property manager, their general contracting arm to do a lot of the work. I'm going to be hiring quite a few subcontractors as well. It needs some exterior uh, exterior facelifting on the inside. There's uh, 10 vacant units right now. The The owner of the property currently is is kind of in a distressed situation and doesn't have the capital to improve the property, is looking to get out, has some family issues she's dealing with as well. So I went directly to the seller. I was having a hard time finding these types of deals on market. Uh, anything that I did find from a multifamily perspective that was being listed, you'd see 30 people show up on day one and 15 offers and best and final rounds. It seems as if people were overpaying. So I kind of went around that whole process and started just identifying buildings that I knew around town would be you know, ones that I would like to own and then looking up public records and trying to find who the owners were and contacting them directly. And it's a, it's a low hit ratio uh, as far as success, but you only need that one with this particular owner. It was just the right timing, uh, the right situation. And it hasn't been easy to negotiate directly with the person. Sometimes it's better to have an intermediary and I've learned that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, we, we both had the same goal in mind. She wanted to sell the property. I wanted to buy it. And we just worked through our differences and, uh, and, and did the best we could. And, and we're pretty much ready to close now. So fingers crossed that'll happen here in a couple of days. We've been cleared, but like I said, it's going to be an exciting thing for for Red Hawk, for my company, and for me uh, personally to grow. So, yeah, well, congratulations on that. It sounds great. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dave Zook from the Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. 
It really did change our lives. So stepping into the passive part of this conversation, I know you're active. You just bought a 40 unit. You, you've been flipping. You've been buying hold. You've done the burr. But I know you're also investing passively. So can you talk a little bit about why you're investing passively when you have this active real estate business that, that's doing so well? Yeah, I think one of the biggest reasons I was interested in investing passively was, I guess there's two reasons. Number one, geographic diversification. If you look at Evansville, Indianapolis, much of the Midwest, it's, it's a cash flow type region of the country where you know, the appreciation of the properties is not going to be as high. You don't have uh, large mass migrations coming in population-wise. A lot of that appreciation is happening in the South and markets like Atlanta, Nashville, parts of Florida, Texas. So I kind of wanted a piece of that action to see if those types of properties would perform a little bit better on the appreciation side. I also kind of like the idea of, as a limited partner, partnering up with these general partners, uh, well-respected ones, well-respected sponsors, where I could kind of learn through osmosis from them as a limited partner on what it looks like to you know, be an investor on the passive side and, and how to do it right as a general partner. Because in this game, as you know, I mean, eventually you grow to a point where you run out of money and you have to partner, you have to find ways to, to raise capital um, if you want to continue that path. So that's something that maybe I, I want to look at doing down the road and I want to leave that option open. So I, I saw that as another avenue to just kind of learn through osmosis. And then secondly, COVID kind of uh, made me realize that my uh, portfolio allocation maybe was a little bit uh, too aggressive from where I am from a risk tolerance standpoint. Uh, taking that you know, 35% hit, 30% hit uh, over the course of a few weeks really shook me up a little bit and made me realize that I'm not you know, as ironclad <laughs> uh, when I look at that portfolio balance as, as I thought I might be. And it was a little bit more jarring, especially without a W-2 income to kind of back it up. You know, my income is variable now versus where I kind of had a guaranteed paycheck before. And I think going through a downturn like that, it's a lot easier to uh, to handle it if you've got guaranteed income coming in. So the market did come back. I didn't sell out at the bottom, thankfully. Uh, it came back to a level where we were slightly below, I think, where we had started before February, March of 2020. And I decided to pull out. Uh, it was a good time to do it, not to take a big you know, uh, tax hit from uh, capital gains. And I thought I could de-risk a little bit uh, in my taxable accounts by putting money to work passively in real estate. Tying it up for five to seven years where I couldn't access it was a good thing. So I couldn't mess it up and invest it in something uh, that was going to uh, be a regret. But also kind of sticking to what I, I talked about at the beginning of the conversation was finding something that would pay some income that was going to be steady, that had the opportunity for appreciation, uh, and offered that geographic diversification I was looking for. So where do you land now? It seems like before you started your real estate journey, you know, in, in, the, in the kind of terms that we use, you were, you were totally in right field because you're investing in mostly the market. Then you started your real estate, and you know, that's kind of a little bit, that's the left field that we talk about. So you're kind of in center field, but you're saying in March after the pandemic and after it bounced back, shifted more towards the left left field and 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 d divested from the market is that correct yeah that's correct i i would say you know 2 years ago my portfolio looked allocation wise looked completely different than it does today i was about 90% stocks 10% bonds and that was it and then i kind of started to learn more about the left field as you call it and there were all these other alternatives out there that 
you won't hear about from a financial advisor because there's no commissions involved. Uh, it's sort of outside the box a little bit. Most of them themselves don't even know about this kind of stuff. So I started trying to educate myself and I'm not where I want to be yet, but I figured I needed to add a few more investing tools to my toolbox. And as I started to learn more about real estate, I started to see that there were so many avenues in real estate to make money. And there's, there's things I want to learn outside of real estate too. I think being well diversified across multiple asset classes, multiple assets in general uh, outside of real estate is a good thing. So my portfolio today looks a lot different. I'm, I'm about, you know, if I count equity within real estate, not the value of the real estate itself, but just the equity I have in it, my portfolio looks about 30% real estate, 40% stocks, some gold, some crypto, you know, other things that make up that other 30%. But very different from where it was before. Yeah, certainly. And so as far as the real estate, when you're investing in in the passive syndications, are you investing in multifamily assets or residential? That, that's what your active is in. Are you trying to diversify out into different types of real estate that maybe aren't correlated with your active? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would like to get less correlated with my active investments passively. That's ultimately the goal. And, and ultimately, I'd like to get more passive than active as I, as I grow older and, and don't want to have as much responsibility on the active side. Currently today, uh, I'm invested mostly in multifamily syndications because it's, it's kind of what I understand. You know, I, I found that whenever I've made investments decisions in the past and haven't fully grasped what I'm getting into and just sort of follow the crowd, it's ended poorly. So I want it to be slow uh, and methodical about you know, the opportunities that I, that I invest in. And right now, that multifamily seems um, you know, kind of in my wheelhouse. With the exception of uh, one deal that I'm in that's a triple net lease uh, industrial uh, property, I, I really like that model too. It just seems like it's so stable. You know, you run the risk of having vacancies and, and having a hard time filling those vacancies if, if a tenant does move out. But if you can find properties that are sticky, that have layouts and operations internally of that building that are very designed specifically for the tenant of the property, it's very unlikely that they'll move. So trying to find those types of properties makes a lot of sense to me. And those triple net leases where you know, the property owner doesn't have to pay taxes, doesn't have to pay insurance, uh, has the maintenance and the capex pretty much covered by the tenant, takes a lot of the, the variable part of the uh, operating expenses off the table. So that to me is pretty attractive as well. Yeah, I'm in a few of those deals also, as you know, and, and I, I really like the consistent cash flow from day one. And the fact that most of those companies have been in those properties for 20, 30, 60 years. So it's really what the, the company, the, they underwrite the company, right? The financials of the company to make sure that they're still going to be around. And you're pretty certain that if they're, if they're a good company and, and have longevity, like you said, they're not moving. So you're pretty much, I don't want to say guaranteed, but your cash flow is going to come regularly and there isn't much that can get in the way of that. So I really like those deals also. So I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about the 4% rule and you talked about you know a 60-40 split between stock and bonds. And we know you've shifted your asset mix from that, but how has investing in real estate, changing your asset mix, how has that affected you know, the 4% rule, which is, you know, the retirement, right? You have principal of, let's say, a million bucks, you're going to retire. Every financial advisor will say you can only take three or 4% out and you can't invade the principal. So 
How has your switch into real estate and income-producing assets changed your mindset, if it has, on the 4% rule and how you're going to deal with retirement? Sure. The 4% rule has, has really um, worked for, very well for the last, call it, 30 years or so. It's just questionable as to whether or not it can continue to work uh, unless you're very heavy overweight stocks. And, and in that scenario, you're subject to sequence of returns risk if you have to pull out money to live off of and you go through a downturn. You don't have bonds that are paying income. So you're kind of forced into that situation. Instead of doing that, what I'm trying to do is try to develop different legs of a stool, if you will, that can support my lifestyle uh, through any sort of economic situation. And I think income from real estate provides a lot of that benefit. My goal now is to replace all of our, basically what we spend, be able to have real estate income provide for that lifestyle and then not touch the principal on any, any other investments, whether that be in 401ks or taxable accounts uh, that are in the stocks or that are in any other investments and just let that grow. If I can reach that point, that will be a success for me. And I don't think the 4% really applies to that scenario because if your income from real estate is providing you know, the spending power you need to live your life, you really don't need to withdraw anything. Uh, you can just kind of let it grow indefinitely until you have to make required minimum distributions at a certain age. But if the income you know, goes down for some reason, you can always sell a piece of property and raise equity that way for whatever it might be. But it's almost like the 4% rule. I don't even think about it anymore because I'm more thinking about how much income can I generate from real estate to replace or just basically provide for my lifestyle. Right. And the whole, you mentioned it earlier, if your asset values go down, if you lose money on these real estate deals, all you have to do is wait and the pr- and it goes back up. But the whole time you're collecting income, right? you're getting cash flow off these assets. And so I think I've been thinking a lot about the 4% rule lately because you have to amass such a huge nest egg, right? If you have a million dollars, you're only getting 40 grand and you're paying tax on it. Or if you have $2 million, you know, then you got 80 grand and you're paying tax on it. But if you have a million dollars worth of real estate and it's provide- providing you 8%, you know, that's not out of this world. That's just normal, normal results. Then now you got 80 grand off your million and you're probably not paying tax on it because of the, the tax benefits of real estate. So I've thought a lot about that 4% rule also. And, and the thing that it does in retirement is you're not watching the market every day, right? Because you know your income's coming in no matter what. And I think that makes, that makes a pretty big difference. Yeah. And to your point, you know, the other thing about real estate that's nice is that you're using leverage in a lot of cases too. So you don't need to own a million dollars in real estate to make 8% return. You might only have $250,000 in equity to own that million dollars in real estate. Now, granted, your cash flow is going to go down the more leverage you have. But the point is, and I don't have an example in front of me, is that you probably need a lot less capital uh, or equity to reach that same income level that the 4% rule would provide. And the 4% rule is there's been periods of time where it's shown that it can fail. Like if you retire at a certain point and you start withdrawing 4%, you could have a problem where you run out of money. So a lot of you know financial independence gurus will suggest if you're going to retire younger than 65 or 67 or whatever the retirement age is now, which I find to be unacceptable, is that you should be really withdrawing like 3% or 3.5%. And that takes your risk down a little bit more. Well, if that be the case, then you need even more money in the bank before you can feel comfortable retiring. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you look, you mentioned sequence of returns risk. And I think that's huge because if you retired, let's say you retired this year in, in February, 
right? And you had a million dollars. And then at the end of March, your million dollars was 700 grand. And you were thinking about taking three or 4% out of that. Now the market bounced back, but it doesn't always happen that quickly. You know, you've gone from thinking you're going to, you're going to live on 40 grand a year to maybe you're going to live on 32,000 or, you know, you take a huge hit to your income when there's a sequence of returns that, that don't go in your favor. Well, where if that money is in real estate, you know, you, you still have the cash flow coming from it. So you're not really losing as much. So I think the sequence of returns is, is a really big deal that people don't think about. So it really matters when you retire, but you can't predict it because you can't predict the markets. I wanted to switch here and talk a little bit about when you're looking at passive investing, how do you find the sponsors? What are you doing? Are you, is it just networking or do you have a, a qualification process to figure out who to invest with? Well, I think word of mouth is huge. You know, finding other people that are involved uh, in passively investing in deals, you know, your website that you've created is an outstanding platform for that and bouncing off, you know, different people's experiences on, on how sponsors have, you know, handled distributions, uh, what level of communication is there with their limited partners, et cetera, et cetera. Those are, I think, the best ways to find sponsors. They're all over the web. They're all over podcasts at this point. And you can kind of, uh, as you listen in to say an individual on a podcast, you can kind of get comfortable with them. And there's a, you know, opportunity to connect with them on a website and have a conversation with them in a lot of cases. So if you you know, can have that connection and, and feel comfortable with the person. That's kind of the next step. But I'm always looking to find that the sponsor's goals are aligned with mine. And that could come in, in many different ways. Uh, but they have to sync up with my, what my goals are. For example, if, if they're charging asset management fees, are they basing that off of the equity that was raised or the income the property has produced and how, the performance of the actual property? So metrics like that, that that can kind of show that, okay, this person is interested in, in building a business, not just doing a cash grab here. So it is, a, it is a little bit different as far as vetting in passive uh, syndications than it is in other investments. But I think those two things is, is finding someone who's invested with this person and, and hearing their story and their experience, and then just kind of picking through uh, the literature, the PPMs, the operating agreements, and making sure that you really understand how fees are being charged and how uh, the sponsor is looking out for you. So what is a great podcast that you listen to, Paul? Man, there's so many good ones now. There's so much content out there. I've kind of evolved and I've listened to certain ones you know, at different times in my, my journey. Nowadays, I, I think the one that I'm getting the most value out of is the Old Capital Podcast with Paul Peebles and, and Michael Becker. Michael Becker has now got his own podcast. But that is just such a good high-level overview of where things are going in the debt market, what lenders are looking at. And to me, that you know is everything when it comes to uh, investing in multifamily in particularly, but also looking at just the overall market and the economy. You know, Banks and liquidity are what provide capital for businesses to grow. And if it's not available, things change pretty dramatically and it can happen pretty quickly. So to me, that podcast is just really insightful as to, as to what lenders are doing how we as investors can kind of use that debt and that leverage to, to benefit us. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, this has been a uh, great, great time chatting with you. And, and I've learned a lot. I really appreciate you being on the show. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way they could do that? Connect with me on my website. It's redhawkinvesting.com. And I also am on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So either one of those routes would be great. Excellent. I will put links to the, both of those in the show notes. And thanks for being here. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you having me.
Well, that was a great conversation with Paul. I really enjoyed hearing his story and, and learning more about his real estate journey. You know, one of the things that always amazes me with people like Paul, and, and there's been examples of others as well, who, you know, maybe the first deal they got into didn't really pan out or didn't meet expectations. And instead of just quitting, he upped his commitment, moved forward because he'd learned from his mistakes, he'd learned how he could do better, and he decided he was still gonna move forward and invest in real estate. And I really admire that. And that led him to actually ditching the W-2, which is what a lot of people in our group, left field investors and others want to do is get enough passive income, they can ditch the W-2. Paul decided instead he'd become an active real estate investor, even though, as I said, that first deal didn't go as well as he had hoped. He had learned enough that he knew he could replace his income being an active real estate investor. And I thought that was great. And then I also was interested, the, the reason he got into real estate was he said he was 90% in the market with his investments. And he realized at some point that the 4% rule, which is what many financial advisors recommend that you take out 4% of your retirement each year, that that wasn't gonna get him through. That wasn't gonna be enough. And so he got into real estate and then realized that the 4% rule doesn't really apply to people who have passive income from real estate because the asset produces cash flow and produces more than the 4% generally. And you don't have to worry about taking money out of the asset because the asset actually supplies you with money. You know, he talked about sequence of return risk, which is that if you retire, let's say you have a million dollars and the day after you retire, the stock market drops 40%. Now, instead of retiring on 4% of a million, you're retiring on 4% of 600,000. And if you have real estate that's producing the cash flow, your cash flow isn't going to go down that much, even if the asset drops considerably. At least it won't go down as quickly. So it's great talking to Paul. He's really a forward thinker. He's a great partner to left field investors. He's constantly writing really good blogs for us. And we really appreciate that. So this will not be my last real estate conversation with Paul. I can promise you that. I really enjoyed it and look forward to having more conversations with him in the future. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.